everyone. It's Alicia from the No She Didn't podcast. Just wanting to thank our new podcast sponsor, H Estates LLC. H Estates LLC provides exclusive consulting, training, and handling for your canine companions. H Estates has been supplying top care for canines for nearly 10 years. Contact them today for a consultation by email at hopkinsestatesllc at gmail.com or you can check them out on Facebook at H Estates LLC. Thank you again, H Estates LLC, for your continued support. No, She Didn't is a new podcast produced by a husband and wife team. They focus on the forensic psychology aspect of true crime and criminal investigations. Each week a new podcast will be released on Fridays discussing a true crime case and how forensic psychology played a role in the investigation. So most of us know the story of Little Red Riding Hood. In the story, Little Red Riding Hood says to the big bad wolf, that's pretending to be your grandmother. But grandmother, what big eyes you have, said Little Red Riding Hood. The better to see you with, my dear, replied the wolf. Today we are going to introduce you to the real-life human wolf that stole the eyeballs of his victims. Hey everyone, this is Alicia. And Jamie. From the No She Didn't podcast, and we hope that you enjoy today's episode. We want you to meet Charles Frederick Albright. He was born in Amarillo, Texas on August the 10th of 1933. Charles was placed for adoption as a newborn, and three weeks later he was adopted by Fred and Dale Albright. Looking in from the outside, it appeared that Charles had a good childhood, but behind closed doors, things were not so simple. In December of 1944, he was known as the most good-natured, eager-to-please of children, a precocious boy who could do just about anything. He could name all the constellations in the sky, catch snakes without getting bitten, and even perform a tap dance routine on stage at the famous Texas Theater. Charlie was like a Pied Piper to the rest of us kids, a childhood friend recalled. He always wanted to see, we always wanted to see what he would do next. He was just so much damn fun. In 1933, when he was three weeks old, Charles was adopted by a young, dark-haired woman we mentioned earlier, Dale Albright and her husband, Fred. Fred was a Dallas grocer. The Albrights lived in the all-white, middle-class neighborhood of Oak Cliff. Then, then it was actually a beautiful residential area across the river from downtown. According to the story... Dell would later tell Charles his birth mother was an exceptional law student, just 16 years old, who had secretly married another student and had become pregnant. When the girl's father found out, he demanded that she annul her marriage and give up the baby for adoption. Otherwise, he would cut her off from the family. Now, Dell Albright made sure that Charles knew she would never abandon him. She pampered her boy. She kept goats in the backyard so he could drink goat's milk, which she said was better for him than cow's milk. Yet sometimes her mothering went to extremes. Uh, When Charles was a small child, she occasionally put him in a little girl's dress and gave him a doll to hold. 
uh, two or three times a day she would change his clothes to keep him uh, to keep the dirt off of him afraid that he might touch dog feces and get polio she took him to the parkland hospital to see the polio patients locked in huge iron lungs you can spend the rest of your life here dale would solemnly tell her son when he was less than a year old dale put him in a dark room as punishment for chewing her tape measure when he wouldn't take a nap, she would tie him to his bed, and when he wouldn't drink his milk, she would spank him. Indeed, people around the neighborhood talked about Dale Albright's odd, grim nature, and no one could ever remember her ever buying herself a dress. She kept a scarf over her head and wore clothes from the Goodwill. Although she and Fred were far from poor, she usually scrimped at mealtimes, even picking up the old bones the local butcher threw in a box for his dogs. She could use them, she would say. For soup. Now, not that Charles ever openly complained. He always appreciated that his mother taught him manners. Uh, Dale told him to speak politely about other people or say nothing at all. She told him to respect women, especially when it came to sex. She lectured him about the ways that his father acted greedy with sex. And whenever Fred saw her in the bedroom in her bra and panties, he tried to grab at her. She was going to have none of that, and she was going to make sure Charlie never tried anything like that with his girlfriends either. As he grew older, she insisted on chauffeuring him around every time he was on a date. She would even call the girl's parents to let them know that her son would not do anything untoward. If Dale seemed overprotective, friends said surely it was because she had never raised a child before. Charles himself actually recognized how fiercely she wanted him to succeed, and each morning before the school bus arrived, she had him practice the piano for at least 30 minutes. She taught him so much reading, writing, and arithmetic that he actually moved up two grades in elementary school. Dell also introduced Charles to the world of taxidermy. When he was 11 years old, she enrolled him in a mail-order course. The Northwestern School of Taxidermy, taught by Professor J.W. Elwood. You are beginning to learn an art that is second only to painting and sculpturing, Professor Elwood wrote in his first book of lessons that Charles received. A true taxidermist must be an artist. As Charles set to work on the dead birds he found, Dell was right beside him. She showed him how to use all the tools, the knife used to cut the skull, the little spoon used to scoop out the brains, uh, the scalpel required to cut away the eyes from their sockets, and forceps that pulled out the eyes. She even skinned the first bird for him, teaching him not to cut too deep. Dutifully, Charles spent hours on his taxidermy courses, stuffing and mounting his birds, making them look as lifelike as possible. Then he would be ready for the crowning touch, which was the eyes. He used to go to a taxidermy shop and stare at the boxes and boxes full of gloriously fake eyes. Owl eyes, eagle eyes, deer eyes. He loved their iridescent gleam, and he wished he could collect them the way that other boys collected marbles. Yet, Dell wouldn't let him. Taxidermist's eyes were too expensive. His frugal mother would say there was a better, cheaper way. She would open her sewing kit, look for exactly what she needed, and get to work. Then she and her son would place the birds in the oak china cabinet in the front of the house. They were indeed Charles Albright's first works of art, just as the mail-order booklet had promised. Everyone who came to the house would peer into the cabinet to see what he had done, and there peering back would be his birds, beautiful, 
lifelike, and blind. The birds had no eyes. Instead, sewn tightly against their delicate feathered faces were two dark buttons, each shimmering dully in the living room light. In September of 1952, when Charlie Albright transferred to Arkansas State Teachers College in Conway, Arkansas, it didn't take him long to become one of the school's most popular students. He was remarkably well-rounded, president of the French Club, business manager of the yearbook, member of the school choir, halfback on the football team, and when he signed up for a drawing course, the art professor was so impressed with Charlie's good looks that he even made him the class model. Yet, Charlie wasn't known as just a goody-two-shoes. He was the all-American fraternity boy, a great college prankster, and one time he sneaked food into the home economics building, got a load of food out of the refrigerator, and cooked a steak dinner for his buddies. Another time, on a dare, he broke into a physics professor's office in the middle of the day, picked the lock on his cabinet, stole what was known around school as the unstealable physics test, raced downtown to make a copy of it, and had the test back in its place within an hour. The professor who was teaching a class next door never suspected a thing. Frankly, Charlie Albright had to feel some relief in being away from home and in school. Uh, He was considered a very bright boy in Dallas. He graduated from Adamson High School at 15 years old, and he was something of a celebrity. When Charlie was only 14, Dell and Fred purchased a piece of property in their neighborhood and gave it to Charlie. So Charlie actually sold it to buy more lots, and the Dallas Times-Herald published a story about him under the headline, World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. Yet, Charlie's love for mischief had tainted his reputation. He had received bad conduct grades in school for shooting rubber bands and crawling out of study hall. He'd accidentally set fire to his chemistry teacher's dress, And he had flunked a few courses because he was too bored to study. And, of course, if his mother had found out, he would have never heard the end of it. So, he sneaked into the school office, filched some report cards from a desk, filled them in with all A's, and proudly showed them to his parents. His teachers' and principals' signatures were perfectly forged. It was a minor stuff, really. It wasn't like he went on to jail for it. As Charlie himself would later explain, I just didn't know what I was doing. If anybody tells the truth, they will say I never did a mean thing in all my life. But I did a lot of mischievous things, just to show off, you know, for the older kids. Well, there was the time he was caught breaking into a neighborhood church. Then there was the time he was caught breaking into a little store and stealing a watch. And then there were the visits that he and his mother received from Alfred Jones, a 20-year-old psychology student working part-time at a Dallas County juvenile probation officer. But what did Jones know back then? And what right did Jones have to say 40 years later when he was a well-known psychologist in Dallas that the dozens of juveniles he saw back in the 40s, the one he remembered most clearly, was Charlie Albright? He could divorce reality sufficiently from his value system, Jones said, so that he could tell you something false and at the time actually believe he was telling you the truth. Maybe one of Charlie's relatives said that he pilfered things from stores because his mother was so stingy, 
or maybe he just wanted to rebel against her. Granted, Del Albright did whatever she could to keep a close watch on her son. She took him to the Methodist church each Sunday. She made him go to bed even when he was in his teens at 8 o'clock every night. Even our boys don't go to bed that early. Uh, whenever she chauffeured him on a date, she watched him so closely that he would joke about the way that she drove with her eyes on the rearview mirror. Charlie loved his mother, that much was clear, but there were little things that sometimes bothered him. He was never certain, for example, that his biological mother had been the brilliant law student that Dell had actually claimed she was. He also hated Dell's cooking that... He would actually, he would stuff his food on a ledge under the table or give it to his dog. Sounds like my mom's cooking. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, I didn't say that. Dell fussed over him so regularly, he said, that he began to get headaches. Dell decided that the headaches were actually from bad eyesight and promptly made Charles wear glasses, even though he had 20-20 vision. But Dell couldn't protect Charlie the first time he left home. Right after high school, he enrolled at North Texas State College in Denton, but by the end of his freshman year, he was arrested for being a member of a student burglary ring that broke into three stores and stole several hundred dollars worth of merchandise. Charlie swore he stole nothing, and the other boys, he said, had asked him to keep some things in his dorm room for them. How was he to know the things were stolen? Dell Albright, the mom, actually went to the store owners and tried to reimburse them for what was taken. She tried to even persuade the judge to let her act as Charlie's lawyer. She even asked that she take his place in prison. Yet the boy went to prison for a year, spending his 18th birthday there. Dell, meanwhile, worked to keep the matter hushed up so that no one in her neighborhood knew that Charlie Albright at the age of 18, had become a convicted felon. Arkansas State Teachers College was Charlie's chance for a new start, and as he told a probation officer, he was going to mend his ways. He began to date a lovely young English major, Betty Hester, and made plans to marry her. He did truly brilliant work in science, although he hardly studied. He made an A in his human anatomy course, and it was said around school that Charlie Albright was going to go far. He even talked about going to medical school and becoming a surgeon. But Charlie never stopped playing pranks. You know, never stopped playing that role of a class clown. Of all of his great pranks, no one would forget the one that he played on his friend, Andrew. In a fit of anger, Andrew had broken up with the most beautiful girl on campus, a woman with almond-shaped eyes. After the separation, he tore up several photographs of her and threw them in the trash can in his dorm room. Weeks later, Andrew got a new girlfriend and asked her for a photo. One night, while Andrew was staring at his new girlfriend's picture, he realized that something was wrong. He looked closer, and it seemed that her eyeballs had been cut out and replaced with the eyeballs of his old girlfriend. In disbelief, Andrew looked up at the ceiling. They had eyeballs staring down at him. At the ceiling was another pair of his old girlfriend's eyeballs and even more eyeballs. They were all around the urinal in the men's bathroom down the hall. No matter where Andrew turned, he was confronted by the sight of his old girlfriend's almond-shaped eyes. 
that story soon raced through the school. The jokester Charlie Albright had pulled the old photographs out of the trash and saved her eyeballs for just the right moment. Did any of his fellow students, in retrospect, find the stunt a bit strange? Of course not, they said. It was pure Charlie. Who else could have been so inventive? In September of 1969, Charlie Albright was 36 when he began teaching high school science in Crandall, a small town east of Dallas. The principal at Crandall, who had been looking for a teacher the entire summer, was ecstatic when the astute young man called him up right before the school year was about to begin. According to his college records, Charles Albright had a master's degree in biology from East Texas State University and was working on another master's in counseling and guidance. He was also about to enter ETSU's Ph.D. program in biology. Albright students found him fascinating. On field trips, he could recite in flawless Latin the scientific name for every plant he came across. He could split open a rotted log and talk about each insect he found inside. He drove a green Corvette to school and wore lizard skin shoes. A few girls, smitten by his charm and masculine looks, even wrote him love letters. He even helped coach the football team, and once, after a heroic play by one of the Crandall football players that won the game for the school, Albright lifted him up and carried him off the field. How the principal would later ask, was anyone supposed to know that the promising young teacher had forged all of his transcripts? He was simply flabbergasted when an ETSU official told him that Albright had never even earned a bachelor's degree. Everything, his degrees, his teacher certificate, had been faked. Apparently, he had slipped into three different offices at East Texas State, grabbed all the necessary forms, copied them, added his name, forged signatures, and then snuck them back into the files. He even he'd even stolen the registrar's typewriter so that the typeface on his records would look the same. Had an ETSU administrator not realized that he had never met the Charles Albright whose name kept popping up on the school's list of graduate students, Albright would have gotten away with the scam. When Albright was confronted, he grinned ruefully and admitted to the crime. He needed to bend the rules a little, he explained, in order to get a teaching job. After he quit Arkansas State Teachers College, well, okay, he was kicked out for being caught down at the train station with suitcases full of stolen school property, including his own football coach's golf clubs. He didn't think he was going to get a second chance to prove how smart he was, and by then he had married his college sweetheart, Betty, and she had given birth to their daughter. Frankly, he didn't have time to begin all over at a university. It was a crying shame, he said. If only he could have finished his degree, there was a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans who would have hired him to do biology research. Because the forgery was a victimless crime, and because Albright himself, according to one ETSU administrator, was such a nice, repentant fellow, the university decided to keep the transcript scandal out of the newspapers. It was embarrassing, you know, after all, that a school could get bamboozled. Albright pleaded guilty 
to a fraud charge and received a year's probation. As the 70s began, Albright was back in his old Dallas neighborhood with his wife and daughter, living in a house not far from his parents' home. Once again, no one had any idea of what he had done. The Charlie Albright the neighbors knew was a happy-go-lucky figure who could master anything but simply didn't care about settling down in a 9-to-5 job. He had some money from his parents, and his wife had a job as a high school English teacher. He was free to latch on to one new project after another, and he rarely had a job that lasted longer than three months. He worked as a designer for a company that built airplanes, and he worked as an illustrator for a patent company. He was a well-regarded carpenter, and he collected wine bottles from the famous El Sorrento restaurant in Dallas, hoping to start his own winery. He bought a lathe and made baseball bats, he collected old movie posters, and he regularly went to the Venetian Room at the Fairmont Hotel to get autographs from the stars performing there. On a lark, he went to a Mexican border town and became a bullfighter. Senor Albright from Dallas, the posters read. Albright still had that Pied Piper-like ability to captivate people. After visiting a friend who worked at the beauty salon in Sanger Harris Department Store, Albright promptly went off to beauty school. He got his beautician's license and then persuaded the salon to hire him, with no experience at all, as a stylist. Albright took to calling himself Mr. Charles. He would spend at least an hour with each woman to get her hair exactly right. When Albright told his stylist friend that he was also an accomplished artist, the friend paid him $250 to paint a picture of his wife. Albright was indeed a good painter, self-taught. He won a prize at the Texas State Fair for his portrait of a dark-haired woman in a long green gown. His goal, he said, was to be like Dimitri Vale, the famous portrait artist of Dallas. Albright worked for weeks on the woman's painting, without finishing. He insisted that he needed to keep working on one special feature, the most difficult part of the painting. Tired of waiting, the friend decided to go to Albright's house to look at the work in progress. There in the living room was a six by three foot portrait. It was richly colored and remarkably realistic. The woman's hair, her mouth, her nose, her ears, her neck, everything was finished. Well, not everything. The stylist stared curiously at his wife's painting, and in the center of his wife's face were two round white holes. After all this time, Albright hadn't even begun to work on the eyes. It was as if something held him back, he said, as if he preferred the portrait to remain as it was on his living room easel. Charles asked the friend, when are you going to paint the eyes? When I'm ready to, Albright replied. Months later, Albright finally painted the eyes. He then painted them again to get them just right. He painted the proper shadows under the eyelashes. He gave the eyelids just the right droop in the corners. He shaded the eyeballs to make them look perfectly round. When Albright was finished, his friend could not believe how well the painting had turned out. It was, he realized, a mesmerizing portrait especially the eyes. His wife's eyes were so perfectly recreated that they seemed to follow a person across the room. Now we're going to start telling you about some incidents that occurred in March of 1985. 
one such incident was kept very, very quiet. There would be no trial, no headlines. The district attorney had arranged for him to serve a probated sentence of 10 years, which meant no jail time. Probation was fine with him, just as it was in 1971 when he was arrested for forging some cashier's checks. 1979 when he was caught shoplifting two bottles of perfume. 1980 when he was sent to prison for stealing a saw from Handy Dan. He had to serve six months. But then at least his mother could tell everyone that he was leaving Dallas temporarily to take an important job at a nuclear power plant in Florida. But if this news got out, it could humiliate him. Not that he was guilty, he kept saying over and over. He had never touched that little girl. The girl's family was just looking for a scapegoat, and they had picked him. Charlie Albright, one of the most dedicated members of St. Bernard's Catholic Church in East Dallas. He had first met the family in 1979 when he began singing in the church choir. People admired his voice, even if it was untrained, and in one hush service he performed the tenor solo, Comfort Ye My People, from Handel's Messiah. Soon he was acting as a Eucharistic minister, standing before the altar in a robe, reading Bible passages, and helping with communion almost like an assistant priest, for goodness sake. He loved to help people, and everyone knew that. The Monsignor at St. Bernard's called him good old Charlie. Albright was known to slip a $100 bill to someone who was down on his luck, and after he met the little girl's family, he brought them a box of steaks. He dressed up as Santa Claus and gave the girl and her siblings presents. Did anyone seriously believe that he would sneak into her bedroom and molest her? Well, the girl's parents tried to keep the matter quiet, especially at church, because they did not want to stigmatize their daughter. But they also wanted good old Charlie to pay. Albright worried that if he fought them, the story would leak. So on March the 25th, 1985, in nearly empty Dallas courtroom, he stood before a judge and confessed to knowingly and intentionally engaging in deviant sexual intercourse with a girl under the age of 14. Keep in mind, he was 51 at the time. For the first time, Charles Albright's mask seemingly had slipped. Was there, on the other side of his gentlemanly, Jekyll-like personality, a kind of sexually perverted hide? Women who heard the story couldn't believe it. After Albright dissolved what he called his loveless marriage to Betty in 1975, he developed a reputation as an old-fashioned ladies' man. He was still getting by with odd jobs and family money, but women saw him as a grand romantic figure, someone who showered them with flowers and music boxes and candy. To one woman, he recited from memory all 42 verses of The Eve of St. Agnes by John Keats. To another, he gave a slew of presents, along with a fully decorated Christmas tree. Women found him virile and sexy, and one said he could do 600 push-ups without stopping. Yet Albright never made a sexual advance toward a woman unless she asked him to first. At least, that's what he proudly told his friends. In late 1985, Albright fell in love with Dixie Austin. She was a pretty, yet shy woman, whom he had met on a trip to Arkansas. It was one of the most romantic times of his life. At dinner, he charmed Dixie with stories about nature and art. 
He showed her the photographs he had collected from Ronald Reagan, Marlene Dietrich, and Bob Hope. He took her hunting in the country for salamanders. His dream, he told her, was to find a new species of salamander that could be named after him. Sex with Albright, Dixie later said, was gentle and satisfying. He never talked dirty to her, and he never wanted her to do anything that might be considered unconventional. He certainly did not sneak off and have affairs. By the time he met Dixie, however, Charles Albright had already created another life for himself. Although he masterfully hid his secret from everyone who knew him, he was a veteran of the red light districts all over Dallas. To some prostitutes, he was a whoremonger, a regular trick. To others, like Susan Peterson, he was even a sugar daddy. At Ranger Bail Bonds, the company she used to bail her out of jail, Peterson listed Charles Albright as her co-signer on bond applications. On one form, she listed him as her best friend, and in the event that she skipped town and the bondsman had to hunt her down. There's also evidence that Albright was a friend of Mary Pratt's long before she became a prostitute. In the early 80s, Mary lived in a South Dallas neighborhood where Albright's parents had long ago invested in cheap rental property. At the time, Albright was temporarily living in one of the rental homes. According to several sources, Albright had a brief fling with one of Pratt's female friends and brought that woman and Pratt over to his house for parties. Other prostitutes say that when Pratt started turning tricks at the Star, Albright became one of her customers. Pratt told them that old man Albright was a good trick, willing to pay a little more than the going rate, and soon Albright was making the rounds. With some of the girls, he had a platonic relationship. He would pick them up, talk to them, take them to get a hamburger, and drop them back off, never even attempting sex. With others, he had standing sexual appointments, always in the afternoons, when Dixie was at work as a sales clerk at a gift shop in Redbird Mall. Our dog, Harley, does not agree with the behavior of this man. (laughs) Every Friday afternoon, for instance, he had sex with a married woman who hit the streets after her husband had gone to work and her children were at school. Albright, whom she called Pappy, felt sorry for her, she said. He was a sweet gentleman. If I ever needed extra money, I would call him and he would drop it off. But the married woman said that by late 1987, she had to put an end to her dates with Albright because he began to get more and more aggressive. She said he asked her to beat him, to spank him like a child. Another prostitute, Edna Russell, remembered meeting Albright when her friend Susan Peterson asked her to do a double. She said she and Peterson went with Albright into a motel room. There, he handcuffed them to the bed and began hitting them with a belt and an extension cord, all the while screaming or shouting, Scream, bitch, you know you like it. Perhaps it was no coincidence that Albright's life began to spin out of control after the death of his parents, Dell and Fred. Without them around to look out for him, he repressed. The repressed part of Albright may have finally unleashed itself. He and Dell, who died of cancer in 1981, were not close in her last years, and Dell was disappointed in the way her son had turned out. 
While Albright found her to be a pest, especially when she would bang on his door early on Saturday mornings to get him to help her with one of her little fix-up projects, but as his final gesture of devotion to his mother, Albright went out and bought a dress for the undertaker to put on her body, the first new dress he had ever seen her wear. Surprisingly, he wept at her funeral, racked with grief or maybe guilt over the way he had let her down. He also cried at Fred's funeral a few years later. Frankly, it had not been until after Dale's death that Albright and his father became close. Albright remembered how Dale constantly nagged at her quiet husband bickering with him about problems around the house. With her gone, Fred seemed more relaxed. Several nights a week, Albright would take him to dinner at a nearby cafeteria. After Fred's fatal heart attack in 1986, Albright inherited at least $96,000 along with all of his parents' homes and property in South Dallas. For what Fred said were sentimental reasons, he kept the property in his father's name. To bring in some extra money, he rented out one of the tiny ramshackle frame homes on a street called Cotton Valley to a truck driver named Axton Schindler. Known as Speedy because he talked so fast, Schindler was a weird individual. He stacked the rooms of his house with trash up to three feet high. He put an automobile engine in the living room. He lived without electricity and running water, and he used a comb and lantern for light and bottled water to wash himself. Albright's friends said that he should get another renter, that Speedy was too unusual. But the always agreeable Albright, who had met Chandler through a female friend, said he wasn't that bad of a fellow, and so he let him stay. At this point, Albright had made the decision to move back into the old family home in Oak Cliff, which, like the rental homes, was still listed in the property rolls under Fred's name. Although the neighborhood had grown somewhat shabby over the years and the house was definitely in need of a new paint job, Albright said the place would do nicely. He brought his Dixie Austin down from Arkansas, and together they settled in for a quiet, romantic life. Now keep in mind the address of the home is 1035 El Dorado. In October of 1990, in the autumn before the killings began, Charles Albright was the model of domestic propriety. During the day, he put his carpenter skills to use around the house, installing new cabinets for the kitchen, adding a skylight in the bathroom, and if he was preparing to become a modern-day Jack the Ripper, None of his friends or family had any idea. But on October 1st, Albright did something that, even for him, seemed a little peculiar. He took a job delivering newspapers in the middle of the night for the Dallas Times-Herald. Albright told Dixie, who by now was his common-law wife, that he needed more spending money. He had never been good with his inheritance, and he had yet to get a full-time job. Because Dixie got a monthly annuity check and worked daily in the gift shop, she paid most of the bills. Dixie wasn't exactly pleased with Charlie's decision. She said she couldn't get a good night's sleep with him gone. But Albright said it would work out fine, and he would wake up around 3 in the morning, deliver papers on an Oak Cliff route between 4 and 6, and then be back in bed by 6.15. He and Dixie agreed that most of the money that he made would go for trips he took with his softball team. The well-built Albright was one of the better players in the city's senior slow-pitch softball league. 
He played for both a day team and a night team, and he was chosen as an outfielder for a local all-star team that went on to the Senior World Series in Arizona. Albright, of course, was the league's most colorful personality. He wore red shoes while everyone else wore black, and he twisted a coat hanger inside his cap so that the cap would sit perfectly upon his head. He brought a cooler of soft drinks to every game for the other players to share. And at the end of the game, there was nobody who could regale an audience with a funny story the way that Charlie could. No one ever saw Charlie upset. I literally mean that, said a man who managed one of Charlie's teams in the fall of 1990. He went out of his way to try to be liked, said a longtime friend who also played ball with him. Every now and then, there would be some jawboning during a game, maybe a scuffle between two players from opposing teams. But if somebody came after Charlie, he would back down as if he was scared. He literally could not stand the idea of fighting. He would rather give you a present. Every time he saw one of my daughters, he gave her a gift or a $10 bill. Because Albright's former teammates were so fond of him, it is difficult even today for them to talk about a certain incident that took place a few months before the murders. Many of them still deny knowing anything about it. Others say that they had only heard about it secondhand. But at least two men have confirmed that Charlie Albright let his mask slip again. At the end of one game... Some players for the Richardson Greyhounds, Charlie's day team, were sitting around the ballpark shooting the breeze and eating some candy that Charlie had brought when two women in a car drove slowly by. After the men joked that the women must be prostitutes, the team's manager shouted, Hey, Charlie, you're single. Why don't you take after one of them whores? Albright said, Hell, I'd kill him if I could. Stunned, the men turned towards their mild-mannered friend and on his face was a dark, scowling look. What do you mean, the manager said, trying to keep the conversation light. we got to have whores. It keeps men from chasing married women. The hell it does, Albright snapped. Then he marched off to his car and left. It was the first time that anyone had ever seen Albright show any kind of anger. When the team assembled again for a practice a few days later, the manager tried to apologize. We were just shooting the bull, he said. Well, that's a touchy subject with me, Albright replied. My mother was a prostitute. He was not talking about Dell, he said. He was talking about his birth mother. Other men were speechless. Was this just one of Albright's tall tales? In the months to come, a number of people tried to verify the story, including an FBI agent and a private investigator working for Albright's defense attorney. They learned that while his biological father could not be traced, his biological mother was a nurse who had lived and died in Wichita Falls. Perhaps she was n never the brilliant law student that Della told her son he was, but there was no way that they could determine if she'd ever been a prostitute. Albright's relatives, in fact, insisted that after a lengthy search through court records, Albright had been thrilled to find his biological mother. As an adult, he had visited her several times in Wichita Falls and had brought her gifts. He'd even introduced her to Fred Albright, which was his adopted dad, and to his own daughter. Yet somewhere in Albright's mind, the connection between prostitution <clears throat> excuse me, and motherhood 
had been made. It is possible that Charles Albright was wrestling with a very twisted version of the Madonna whore complex, unconsciously seeking revenge on the mother figures <clears throat> excuse me, who disappointed him by associating with prostitutes, the worst possible women he could find. On one hand, he seemingly cared for prostitutes like Susan Peterson and Mary Pratt, and he helped them financially, bought them dinner, gave them presents. On the other hand, he wanted to punish them. Perhaps he hated what they had become, and perhaps he hated what he had become in their presence. Jamie, I think you need some allergy medicine. Something. Something's going on with my throat. I'm sorry to hear that, honey. <laughs> Whatever the reason, if Albright had truly decided the time had come to kill, he had put himself in a perfect position to do it. His paper route gave him an excuse to be out at night. He had prostitutes who trusted him enough to let him take them on a little trip. He had his parents' old property, just a 10-minute drive south of the star, where unseen, he could carry out the murders and mutilations. And because the property was in his father's name, nothing could be traced back to him. There was only one flaw in that plan, one Albright didn't even know about. Charlie's truck driving tenant, Axton Schindler, had decided a few years back not to list his South Dallas address on his driver's license. As he liked to say, he preferred to keep his privacy. He wanted the government to stay out of his business. Instead, he put down 1035 El Dorado, the address for Charles Albright. In December of 1990, the first victim turned up in an undeveloped, almost forgotten lower class area of far south Dallas. She was a large woman, and I take high offense to this. They say she was only 156 pounds. That's not a large woman. Anyway, <laughs> she was naked except for a t-shirt and a bra, which had been pushed up over her breasts. Her eyes were shut. Her face and chest were badly bruised. Apparently, the killer had thought it was best to beat her before firing a 44 caliber bullet into her brain. A resident of the neighborhood was so horrified by what he saw that he rushed inside of his home and he brought out a flowered bedsheet to cover the body. A police officer on the scene immediately recognized the woman as Mary Pratt, age 33, and a veteran prostitute who had worked the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. While it was not unusual for the whores of Oak Cliff, as the police called them, to get their share of beatings, almost nightly a girl would complain about a trick jumping bad on her, punching her, kicking her, even trying to run over her with a car. But for a whore to be murdered was unusual especially when it happened to be someone as well-liked as Mary Pratt. Mary wasn't one of the brazen hookers who stood in the streets and flagged down tricks, and because she had rarely any extra spending money, the money she got usually went for drugs, she never bought sexy clothes, and standing quietly on the street corner, she wore blue jeans, tennis shoes, and small t-shirts that you know, showed off her breasts and Occasionally, at the end of the night, she asked one of her regulars to drive her to her parents' home in the South Dallas suburb of Lancaster. Mary's parents, older retired people, never knew about her other life. They would call out goodnight as she climbed into her childhood bed. Pratt's file was actually handed to John Westphalen, and he was a short, ruddy-faced homicide detective at the Dallas Police Department. 
With his thick East Texas accent and a wad of red man chewing tobacco permanently placed or packed in his cheek, West Phelan looked more like a rustic county sheriff than a street smart urban cop. In homicide circles, he was known as something of a character. Defense attorneys loved to complain about his blustery, intimidating interrogation tactics. But West Phelan was one of the department's most tenacious investigators. He took one look at the Pratt file and realized the case would depend more on the good luck than on good detective work. Pratt's killing was a dumped body case. And that's actually one of the hardest types of murders to solve. She'd obviously been killed in one location and dumped somewhere else. There were no witnesses to either the killing or the dumping. No murder weapon. Little forensic evidence. No fingerprints. And no apparent motive. Considering the kind of felonious characters who nightly swing by the Star Motel, Mary Pratt could have been shot by just about anyone. Now, accompanied by his partner, homicide detective Stan McNear, West Phelan drove to the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office to watch the autopsy of Mary Pratt. It was a routine trip. Both men knew the autopsy would show a gunshot wound as the cause of death. And as Dr. Elizabeth Peacock, one of the staff's younger pathologists, put down her coffee cup to begin examination, West Phelan and McNear stood a short distance from the blue plastic cart where Pratt's body lay. Peacock noted the needle tracks on Pratt's arms, the Playboy bunny tattoo on her chest, and of course the bullet hole in her head. She opened Pratt's right eyelid, and then she opened the left. My God, she exclaimed, they're gone. There were no eyeballs, no tissue, nothing. Mary Pratt's eyes had been cut out and removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were left undisturbed. Peacock was dumbfounded. This was not an operation taught in medical school, and the killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure the adjoining skin, and then cut the six major muscles holding each eye in the socket, as well as the roped-up optical nerve. Do you remember back when earlier in this discussion we were talking about Charles Albright's mom working with him in the taxidermy shop? Yeah. And using the spoon to scoop out the brains of the birds. Yeah. That actually made me think about that. I wonder if that's where he got that technique from. I would assume. To scoop out the eyeballs. You would have to have that as a taxidermy skill. Absolutely. So with the eyelids shut, it was impossible to tell that the eyes were missing. Surely whoever did this had to have a lot of practice on someone or something else, as we just discussed. Quickly, West Phelan contacted the FBI's Violent Crimes Apprehension Program Unit. Through its computers, the FBI keeps data on the nation's most unusual and depraved mutilations, um, such as bodies being chopped up, organs removed, even eyes punctured with a knife as a result of frenzied attack. Anything that's weird, they put in the database. So, uh, But an FBI agent told Wes Phelan that he found no listing anywhere of such a surgically precise cutting. Longtime Dallas cops take pride in acting utterly unaffected by anything that comes their way, but this time Wes Phelan couldn't help it. He asked what kind of person 
would want a girl's eyeballs. So in December of 1990, because the police had not released any information about Mary Pratt's missing eyes, her death had only warranted a two-paragraph story in the back sections of the local newspapers. In fact, when patrol officers John Matthews and Regina Smith began their daytime shift on December 13th, just a few hours after Pratt's body was found, they had not even heard about the crime. Only two and a half months before, the two officers had been assigned to a newly created beat on Jefferson Boulevard. That included Pratt's streetwalking territory. Once the most popular shopping district in Oak Cliff, Jefferson had deteriorated over the previous 25 years. It had become a victim of urban blight. Some storefronts were shuttered and others were barely profitable. The Texas Theater was infamous for being the site where Lee Harvey Oswald hid out after the Kennedy assassination, and it was padlocked. Matthews and Smith's assignment was to provide a police presence for the area and to become acquainted with the merchants, shake a lot of hands, and crack down on small-time crimes such as burglary, car theft, shoplifting, and prostitution. In police circles, it was far from the glamorous beat. Other officers used, you know, that were used to the action of the streets considered it more of a public relations position. So each morning, Matthews and Smith began their day by cruising down Jefferson, herding the prostitutes back toward the Star Motel, and on a busy day, about 40 women, mostly black, some white, and a few Hispanic, worked the area, charging anywhere from 15 to $50 for a flatback, which is straight sex. The Star was not a high-class call-girl operation, and Matthews snidely called the 40-room motel the prostitute condominium. The women there, most of them drug addicts, would have sex in a customer's car in a nearby alley or use a room shared with other prostitutes. Then, money in hand, they would walk down a well-worn dirt path to one of the nearby dope houses and purchase heroin or crack. After a quick hit, they would be out on the street again. Some hookers would work nonstop for two or three days, never even changing their clothes or taking time to eat until they finally crashed back at the motel or in the house of their sugar daddy, a regular customer who cared for the woman enough to provide her with food, clothes, and a place to sleep. It's such a dreary scene, though it did not phase Matthews, which was a stocky, no-nonsense 28-year-old. Little on the streets did at that time. The son of a parole officer in New York State, he'd grown up with cops and robber stories. He'd been with the Dallas Police Department since he was 21. And when he went to work patrolling Harry Hines Boulevard, one of the city's high crime and prostitution areas, and on the other hand, when 31-year-old Regina Smith decided to become a police officer, she'd never even fired a gun seen a dead person, or even been in a fight. These two were definitely mispaired. She was a former supermarket cashier, a graduate of a two-year fashion merchandising college, and the single mother of a six-year-old child. Nonetheless, inspired by a newspaper story about the need for more black female officers, she entered the Dallas Police Academy in 1988. I give her kudos for that. Her instructors berated her for wearing too much jewelry, which sounds a lot like me, mocked the way that she shot a gun, and laughed when she couldn't finish her push-ups, which I couldn't either, but she refused to quit. After graduation, she was assigned to one of the rougher night shifts, and she still wouldn't quit. 
And I know you said that they were kind of mismatched, but ordinarily that's what they do. They'll put the inexperienced person with someone that does have a little experience so that they can help and teach them. And it seems like that would make a lot of sense. <clears throat> so on the Jefferson beat, Smith discovered that she had a knack for talking to prostitutes. She wanted to talk to them, and she felt it was her duty as a police officer to try to improve people's lives. Tell me, girl, she would say to a new prostitute, what are you doing whoring out here? You know you can make more money working at Burger King than you do here. She even started a hook book, a kind of photo album that contained the mugshots of the whores on the street, and she would wistfully leaf through her hook book the way some people pour over their high school annuals. On a particular morning, Smith was not surprised to see Veronica Rodriguez, a brazen, charcoal-eyed prostitute who would try to flag down tricks even when she knew the cops were watching. Usually, when she spotted Matthews, she would lean forward so he could see her cleavage, and she'd say, How you doing, officer? Rodriguez was barely 26 years old, had already lived a miserable life. She'd been arrested for prostitution numerous times, and once even when she was nine months pregnant. Although that baby was stillborn, she was the mother of at least one child, a baby born on a raggedy bed in a whore motel down the road from the star. As Matthews pulled the squad car alongside Rodriguez, Smith rolled down her window. She noticed a nasty gash across Rodriguez's forehead and what looked like a thin knife cut across the front of her neck. Girl, what happened to you? she asked. Don't arrest me, Rodriguez gasped. I almost got killed. Rodriguez told the officers that the previous night she'd been picked up by a trick driven a long way south to a field, and raped. The man, a white man, she said, then tried to kill her. But she escaped and ran toward a house. The man at the house just happened to be someone she knew. He also just happened to know the man who was trying to kill her. Matthews and Smith gave each other a look. Rodriguez was a notorious liar, and no doubt she had been in some kind of fight. But in the middle of nowhere, she ran right into the house of someone she knew. This was probably another of Rodriguez's uh, pity stories, which she often told the cops so they would feel sorry for her and leave her alone. Yet two days later, on an afternoon drive past the star, Matthews and Smith saw Rodriguez again. She was sitting with a balding, middle-aged white man in the cab of an 18-wheeler. While Matthews went to one side of the truck to get Rodriguez and escort her to the squad car, Smith went to the other side to speak to the man. She asked him for his driver's license, which he produced. His name was Axton Schindler of 1035 El Dorado. When Smith ran Schindler's name through the computer, he came up clean except for some unpaid traffic tickets. Suddenly, Rodriguez started shouting, Oh, don't arrest him. That's the man who saved me from the killer. That's not him. The officers looked at the address again, 1035 El Dorado. It was not out in South Dallas where Rodriguez's attack allegedly took place. It was in an Oak Cliff neighborhood, just a five-minute drive from the star. The man, a sort of nervous guy who spoke incredibly fast, said that he had no idea what Rodriguez was talking about. He said he had known her for years and was just giving her a ride to the motel. He didn't protect her from any killer, and he didn't even have sex with her. He was just a long-distance truck driver doing her a favor. 
Rodriguez, the officers decided, was lying once again. They carted her to jail for prostitution and hauled Schindler in for his unpaid tickets. Although Matthews and Smith would not know it for months, a clue to the murderer's identity had just fallen right into their laps. So in February of 1991, the second victim was found on a Sunday morning on the same South Dallas road where Mary Pratt was stopped. Like Pratt, she was mostly naked. Like Pratt, she was a prostitute. Her name was Susan Peterson, age 27. And if you'll remember, we talked about Susan and Mary both earlier in the episode. She had been shot in the head, chest, and stomach, and her eyelids were closed. Because her body was discovered on the other end of the road, just outside the city limits, the jurisdiction for the case fell to the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. So a detective named Larry Oliver, who had not heard about the Pratt killing, was called to the scene. Eerily, the same scenario unfolded. Oliver accompanied the body to the autopsy room where a pathologist began a standard external examination. The pathologist opened one eyelid, then the other. He motions for Oliver to come closer to the table, and Oliver could not believe what he was seeing. The dead woman's eyes had been expertly cut out. When the pathologist mentioned that the Dallas Police Department had had a similar case just two months earlier, Oliver did some checking. Within 24 hours, he traveled to the police department's homicide offices to see John West Balin. Soon there were meetings with sergeants and lieutenants and with the chief in charge of homicide. While police officials deliberately avoided the phrase serial killings to describe what was happening, West Phelan kept referring to the killer as a repeater. Everyone in the room knew what they were hunting for, a twisted, brilliant murderer, someone who dropped bodies on quiet residential streets where they were certain to be found the next morning. At that point, a contingent of detectives favored keeping the lid on the story. If the press discovered that the killings were linked and turned the spotlight on the Star Motel, the killer might get nervous and start picking up women from other areas. But homicide supervisors decided that the police department had a greater obligation to warn the community that it might be in danger, even if it meant warning low-dollar hookers. Besides, you know, publicizing the case might bring in some leads. Um, Lord knows there was little else to go on. So flyers were posted around the star asking prostitutes to stay off the streets, and detectives met with the press to discuss the two killings. Although no information was officially divulged about the missing eyes, word quickly leaked to reporters that the women's faces had been strangely mutilated. The guy was almost surgical in the way he did it, one detective told a reporter. The police department's dismay, a media frenzy ensued. The prostitute murders sent the city's imagination into overdrive. Calls came in from reporters all over the country. As John Matthews and Regina Smith sat in their squad car reading the front-page newspaper stories about the prostitutes' deaths, they too were shaken. These were women from their beat, women they were supposed to protect. They knew Susan Peterson. She used to be the most beautiful white prostitute in Oak Cliff. Although her five years on the street had taken their toll, her once alluring smile had turned winter hard and her body had grown plump, 
She was still able to put on her brown go-go boots and denim miniskirt and pick up 10 to 12 tricks a night. And she was fearless. She was a fearless hooker. She threatened other prostitutes who tried to work too close to her corner. She even cursed Matthews and Smith when they tried to move her off of Jefferson Boulevard. Like a good pickpocket, she was an expert at a clipping trick. At clipping, which is a prostitute trick. It's stealing money from the billfold (laughs) of the guy that she was having sex with. If the killer could get Peterson, Matthew and Smith said, then he could get any of the women. They surmised that the killer knew every corner of the Horde District, all the alleys and all the streets. He was able to pick up Peterson and vanish within seconds. He almost had, you know, he must have been one of her regular customers. Otherwise, she would have never let her guard down. Certainly, she wouldn't have allowed him to shoot her three times and she would have pulled a razor out on him and fought back so this time when matthews and smith pulled up to the star the prostitutes didn't keep their distance they poured out of their room surrounded the squad car and began to pass on their own personal list of suspects the women talked about their kinkiest tricks the men who wanted to tie them up or whip them and smith made her usual impassioned speech about the girls to get off the street but the black prostitutes at least were not buying it He's after the white girls, honey, not us, they said. Oddly enough, the black prostitutes saw the killings as an opportunity for them to get more business. And then there was Veronica Rodriguez. Rodriguez had been telling a lot of people, reporters and other prostitutes, and Matthews and Smith, as well as other officers, any number of stories since the killings began. At first, she had said that she had witnessed Mary Pratt being shot, Then she said she'd met a man who had only bragged about having killed Pratt. Then she said she knew nothing at all about Pratt's death, about her own rape in the South Dallas field. She no longer said the killer was white. Now he was Hispanic. You know, then she said he might have been black. Almost everyone who spoke with her thought that she was brain fried from drugs. Well, when you tell that many different stories and you have so much convolution going on, what else are you supposed to expect? Absolutely. But what bothered Matthews was that Rodriguez had never changed her basic story from being attacked. Usually, she would forget whatever pity story that she had told the day before. So did someone really try to kill her in that field? Could the man who supposedly saved her, Action Schindler of 1035 El Dorado, know the killer too? Or could Schindler have done something to, had something to do with the killing himself? Could it be that the real reason Rodriguez was changing her story was simply because she was afraid? Matthews and Smith didn't know what to do next. They'd already told the homicide division that Rodriguez claimed to have information about about Mary Pratt. They'd mentioned the attack and the possible Axton Schindler connection. With that, they figured that they'd done their job. It would have been out of line for the two young officers to cross into the homicide's territory and conduct a murder investigation on their own. Later, Wes Phelan would say that he never got the officers' tips. Among all the phone calls and all the messages and all the reports flooding in, you know, the name Axton Schindler never crossed his desk. Whatever the case, a potential break was slipping away and the killer was preparing to strike again. And he did. March 19th, 1991, John Westphalen had filled up four black spiral notebooks with notes on the prostitute murder case. He'd gone back and re-examined the crime scenes, 
Special undercover units had been sent to stake out the prostitution areas and run computer checks on the license plates of vehicles that had cruised by just to see if the owners might have any unusual criminal records. Everything added up to zip. This was a killer in total control, a man who refused to panic. We've got to answer three questions, Wes Phelan said again and again at the meetings about the case. Number one, why is he after prostitutes? Number two, why were both bodies dumped on that same street? And number three, why are those eyes cut out? Sitting around West Phelan's battleship gray metal desk in the heart of the fluorescent lit homicide office, detectives started throwing out theories. Maybe the killer had gotten AIDS from a prostitute and was out for revenge. Maybe he believed the old superstition that a murderer's image always remained on the eyeballs of the person he kills. Maybe he believed a dead person's eyes would follow him forever. Or maybe the killer took the eyeballs to fuel some sexual fantasy. Maybe he wanted to eat them or cook them. The only thing Westphalia knew for sure was that the killer came out late at night, was strong enough to drag those girls in and out of a car, and had surgical skills. He also probably needed a well-lit room to do his surgery. Hell, somebody said, maybe this guy is a whacked-out doctor. Suddenly, in the early morning hours of March the 19th, the killer changed tactics. On Fort Worth Boulevard, another whore hangout a few miles from the star, a black prostitute named Shirley Williams emerged from the Avalon Motel, where she worked as a maid during the day and turned tricks at night. According to another prostitute who saw her, Shirley was wearing jeans and a yellow raincoat and appeared to be in a stuporous drug high as she tottered alone on the sidewalk. She was found at 6.20 the next morning, dumped on a residential street half a block from an elementary school in the heart of Oak Cliff. As children walked to school, they could see the naked woman crumpled against the curb. An unopened condom was beside her body. Go look at her eyes and tell me if they're there, Wes Phelan said to the medical examiner's field agent at the scene. The field agent flipped open the eyelids. Gone, he said. Wes Phelan turned to his partner, Stan McNear, and said, We've got number three. The autopsy on Shirley Williams' body would show that the surgery had been hurried. The broken tip of an exacto blade was found embedded in the skin near her right eye. But there were still no witnesses, no murder weapon, no fingerprints. Worse, the killer had now murdered a black woman and he had moved locations, which is very uncommon for a serial killer to do. They generally stick within one race once they begin killing and they certainly don't change locations that often. Just as the detectives had feared, the publicity about the case had sent the killer away from the star and his South Dallas dumping ground. There was no telling where he would hit again. So, by March the 22nd of 1991, once word of Shirley Williams' killing spread, the Star Motel turned into a ghost town. Some prostitutes, black and white, told officers at John Matthews and Regina Smith that they were leaving Dallas. Others said that they were getting out of the business, 
a few women so desperate for drug money that they couldn't leave moved together to a street corner next to the home of a man who promised to serve as their lookout and bodyguard. Does that sound like a pimp to you? That sounds a little bit like a pimp to me. So, cruising the area, Matthews and Smith spied a black prostitute, Brenda White, a 17-year veteran of the neighborhood. White tended to work alone on a street corner in front of a church, away from the other prostitutes. The officers decided to stop and make sure that she knew about the murders. Girl, Smith said, don't you know there's a killer loose? He's now killing the black girls too. Well, I'm going to get my black ass out of here, White replied. I just had to mace a man who jumped bad on me the other night. White actually told the officers that a few days before, a trick in a dark station wagon had pulled up alongside her and that she had gotten inside the car. He was a husky-looking white man with salt-and-pepper hair, cowboy boots, and blue jeans. Let's go to a motel, she told him. No, he said, I've got a spot we can use. As a way to protect herself, White never allowed a new trick to take her anywhere but a whore motel, so she told him to drop her off immediately. Suddenly, a change came over his face. She recalled it was like anger, rage. He said, I hate whores. I'm going to kill all of you MFing whores. Pardon me. <laughs> Before he had a chance to grab her, White shot a stream of mace into his face threw from the door and jumped out, breaking the heel of one of her favorite red leather pumps. For the rest of the day, Matthews and Smith could not shake White's story from their minds. They flipped through their notebooks, they thought about everything the whores had told them since the killings began, and always they returned to Veronica Rodriguez's rambling talk about being raped. The next morning, as they were checking in for work at their police substation, Smith said, we need to run a computer check on that Axton Schindler guy. Because county government computers can, you know, they contain more information about citizens than the city computers. Don't know why that is. But she and Matthews drove to the Dallas County Constable's office near Jefferson Boulevard. There, a deputy constable on duty named Walter Cook, he agreed to help them. Seated around the terminal, the officers asked Cook to type in Schindler's address, 1035 El Dorado. Now, the name Fred Albright popped up as the owner of the property. Fred Albright? Where was Axton Schindler? So, Cook punched in another code. It turned out that this Fred Albright also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley. Wasn't Cotton Valley in the very neighborhood in South Dallas where the first two prostitutes were found, Cook kept typing. Fred Albright, the computer reported, was dead. Matthews and Smith stared at the screen. The only clue in the case led them to a dead man. Then after a pause, Cook said softly, maybe this has something to do with a man named Charles Albright. Several weeks before, Cook explained that he had come to the office early one morning and had answered a call from a woman who would not identify herself. The woman had been friends with Mary Pratt, she said, and through Pratt had met a man whom she briefly dated. He was a very nice man, she said, but he had an odd love for eyes. She also happened to mention that he kept exacto blades in his attic. Cook asked for the man's name. Charles Albright, she said. 
Now, if any other constable's deputy had been helping Matthews and Smith that day, the link to Albright might have never been made. But good fortune prevailed, Cook typed in another code, and personal information for Charles Albright popped up on the screen. Born August 10, 1933, with the address of, yes, you guessed it, 1035 El Dorado. Somehow, they said, Schindler and Albright were connected. Perhaps Albright was Schindler's friend, the one who had tried to kill Veronica Rodriguez, and their hearts racing, Matthews and Smith rushed to the county's identification division and asked to see Albright's criminal records. The officers discovered a string of thefts, burglaries, and forgeries, and the charge of sexual intercourse with a child. The clerk then pulled out a mugshot of Albright, a photo of a rather handsome, well-built man with grayish hair, angular features, and deep-set dark eyes, just like the man Brenda White had described. In the picture, Albright was frowning, his face perplexed, as if he was surprised he had been caught. The clerk wondered why Smith was so excited. Honey Smith said, I think we got the killer. On their way to the homicide department, Matthews and Smith rehearsed everything that they wanted to say. They could not seem unprepared, Matthews insisted. It was nervy enough for two raw patrol officers to visit the legendary Westphalen and tell him that they believed that they had found the killer, although they had no solid evidence to prove it. Westphalen greeted them politely and Matthews started, then Smith interrupted and soon they were both talking at once. Westphalen sighed, calm down, he said, let's take it slow. A few minutes later, after they had finished their presentation, Westphalen decided that they were on to something. He put together a photo lineup of six mugshots and told Matthews and Smith to show it to Brenda White. Immediately, Smith and Matthews tracked White down on her usual street corner and asked her if she recognized any of the men in the mugshots. White unhesitatingly pointed to Albright's picture and said he was the man who had attacked her. A little while later, they showed the same lineup to Veronica Rodriguez. According to Matthews, when Rodriguez got to the third picture, Albright's, she started trembling. Suddenly fearful, she refused to identify anyone. Matthews called Westphalen with the bad news, and Rodriguez is so afraid of the killer, he said, that she won't even pick out his picture. Bring her down here to see me, Westphalen growled. Now, Westphalen knew that if he could not get Rodriguez to break, that he wouldn't have the evidence to go after Charles Albright. Brenda White's story offered only the prospect of a misdemeanor assault charge. But if Rodriguez identified Albright, the Dallas police could file charges for attempted murder, get a search warrant, and look through his house for evidence that might connect him to the three murders. Smith and Matthews dragged Rodriguez downtown. In a small interrogation room, Westphalen stared with his icy blue eyes at the crack-addicted Rodriguez. Rodriguez began to shake again. Tears poured out of her eyes. She wouldn't look at the pictures laid out before her. Trying to control his anger, Westphalen took a different tactic. He told Rodriguez about the three girls when they were brutally killed, how the police couldn't get the killer off the street without her help. This is so easy, he said. Pick out the picture of the guy who assaulted you, and we will get him, and we will put him in jail where he can't hurt you. Slowly, Rodriguez looked over at the mugshots. While Westphalen and another officer watched, she reached for Albright's photo, turned it over, and signed her name.
at 2.30 in the morning on March the 22nd, as a gentle rain fell on Oak Cliff, a team of tactical officers burst through the front door of 1035 El Dorado. Despite the home's shabby exterior, the treasures of Charles Albright's eclectic life decorated room after room. One cabinet was filled with exotic champagne glasses. Another held delicate, expensive Eladro figurines of pretty young women. On one wall were Life magazine covers and valuable Marilyn Monroe movie posters. As Charles Albright was handcuffed and led away, he never said a word. Stumbling out of bed in her nightgown, Dixie Austin, his girlfriend, looked incredulously at Albright and then back at the police. Unable to imagine what the man she loved could have done, she began to scream. So in December of 1991, for a long time after Charles Albright's arrest, most everyone involved in his case wondered whether the police had enough evidence to convict him of murder. Despite a withering all-night interrogation by Wes Phelan, Albright refused to confess to anything. He acted as if he had never heard the names of the murdered prostitutes, and police searched through every square inch of the South Dallas properties. They searched his Oak Cliff house six times, and the FBI even brought in a high-tech machine that could see through walls. Although the searches produced an array of interesting items, carpenters' woodworking blades, exacto blades, a copy of Grey's Anatomy, at least a dozen true crime books, they never came up with the eyeballs. Behind Charlie's hand-built fireplace mantle, police discovered a hidden compartment filled with pistols and rifles. None, however, turned out to be the murder weapon. Nor could police find anyone who would admit to seeing Charlie with the three prostitutes on the nights that they were killed. Dixie claimed that on the nights in question, Charlie did not leave the house early for his newspaper route and that he always came home on time. As the trial date arrived, Veronica Rodriguez decided to testify as a witness for the defense. She claimed that she and Albright had never been together and that Wes Phelan had coerced her into picking Albright's photograph from the lineup. Ashton Schindler continued to deny that he had saved Rodriguez from Albright and he said a Hispanic man named Joe had brought her to his door. But Toby Shook, a low-key 33-year-old prosecutor working for the Dallas County District Attorney's Office, had a trump card. For the first time in its history, the DA's office was going for a murder conviction based solely on controversial hair evidence. Days after Albright's arrest, the city's forensic lab reported that hairs found on the bodies of the dead prostitutes were similar to hair samples taken from Albright's head and pubic area. As evidence goes, hairs are not as conclusive as fingerprints, and it's impossible to tell how many other gray-haired men's hairs might look similar to Albright's hair under a microscope, yet in this case, the lab kept running tests. Lab technicians said that the hairs found on the blankets in the back of Albright's pickup truck were similar to hair samples from the first two prostitutes killed, which were Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson. Hairs found in Albright's vacuum cleaner matched the hair from the third prostitute killed, Shirley Williams. An additional piece of the puzzle came from John Matthews and Regina Smith. The officers found a prostitute, Tina Connolly, who claimed that Albright was one of her regular afternoon customers on Fort Worth Boulevard. She never saw him cruise after dark, she said, except for one time, the night Shirley Williams disappeared. 
Connolly took Matthews and Smith to a secluded field near Fort Worth Boulevard where Albright used to take her for sex. There, they spotted a yellow raincoat, just like the one Williams was last seen wearing, and a blanket. Hairs on the coat and blanket matched Albright's hair. Albright's defense attorney, Brad Lawler, tried to convince the jury that the case against Albright depended on the flimsiest circumstantial evidence. The killer, he said, was probably Axton Schindler, who just happened to skip town the week of the trial. Admittedly, the police had many unanswered questions about Schindler. Wes Phelan had spent hours interrogating him, trying to determine if he'd assisted Albright in the killings or was at least aware that Albright was murdering women on the rental property. But there was nothing to tie him to the case except for an empty 44 caliber bullet box found behind the house, which Albright might have dropped there himself. When Schindler and Albright's photos were shown to dozens of prostitutes, none recognized Schindler, but many recognized Albright. Nor were there any hairs found on the dead prostitutes that could be linked to Schindler. Most important, no one who had ever met Axton Schindler could imagine that he would have had the slightest skill required to perfectly remove a set of human eyes. Albright, surprisingly, never testified. Throughout the trial, he sat quietly in his chair, his shoulders slumped like a weak, humbled figure. Shook, in his closing argument, derisively called Albright this former biology teacher, bullfighter, college-age smart man who just couldn't seem to keep a job, but Shook warned the jury not to underestimate Albright, that he had grown much smarter during this trial, and that if he ever got out of jail, he wouldn't make the same mistakes again. On December the 19th, when the jury returned with a guilty verdict and a life sentence, Dixie collapsed in the courtroom. Albright's friends avoided the reporters in the courthouse hallway. It was as if they did not want to be blamed for having lived with a vicious killer without recognizing him for what he was. But a stunned Brad Lawler, who genuinely thought he was going to get his client acquitted, strode tight-lipped out of the courtroom. It's always a miscarriage of justice, he told the press, when an innocent man is convicted. So, I don't know about you guys, but that was a very interesting story. And just to imagine the psychological component that went with that is amazing to me. He was a very organized killer for certain. So, what we want to do is we want to let you know that we appreciate you guys. And as of the release of this podcast, Charles Frederick Albright is still in prison. And we want to thank you for listening. And we look forward to bringing you another story next week. So stay blessed and remember, no, no she, she didn't, didn't, but now, now she, she does. does.